poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. Energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Earlier this year, our guest said South Africa was, and I quote, on a knife edge, and only by ramping up the public-private sector collaboration that saved it from the worst of the pandemic can it be hauled back from the abyss. This is what I think. As a country, we seem to be very adept at balancing on that knife while also standing at the edge of the abyss at the same time. Welcome to the Money Web Podcast Fix SA. My name is Jeremy Maggs. Now, our guests in coming weeks are going to be asked some simple questions. How can we make things better? How do we improve matters? How in the shortest space of time can we become a competitive and successful nation? Martin Kingston is well known. He's chair of Business for South Africa, and he has uh, some 40 years experience in the financial services industry. And this is the important part. He's also intermediated extensively between government and the private sector. So how would he fix South Africa? Martin, a very warm welcome to you. If we were on a knife edge, as you were reported uh, as saying, how lacerated are we right now? I think we're in a difficult place, uh, Jeremy. And uh, we all know with the ANC conference, uh, people are sitting, uh, some eating their popcorn, some chewing their fingernails, uh, and we've got to get through a period of political uncertainty. Uh, The reality, of course, is that we've got very significant challenges, all of which, as I've said previously, had been exacerbated uh, by COVID, the unemployment, uh, poverty and inequality that we're all very familiar with. And yet we also saw extraordinary efforts by society at large to come to the party uh, to bring their skills and expertise wherever possible. And so I think that the real solution is to find partnership models that work for everybody in a very clear, focused and appropriate way, as we did uh, initially uh, when COVID broke uh, with the three work streams that Business for South Africa was involved with. So mobilizing PPE mm. for the country, uh, dealing with the need to provide support for people who are rendered unemployed or indeed crafting an appropriate economic recovery strategy. And then with the vaccination rollout program where we work with government uh, to design and then actually implement and operationalize that rollout program. Let's get to the partnership models in just a moment and how you unlock it, how you make that more efficient. But what path does government need to forge and what type of real leadership do we need, which doesn't seem to be in place right now? Well, we've identified as business a limited number of interventions where we can help. And I say that not because it's business's responsibility, but in all of these areas, government needs to lead exactly uh, as you've said. Uh, And people feel uh, that there need to be difficult decisions that are implemented aggressively and indeed comprehensively uh, by government. Uh, They cannot cover the waterfront. Uh, The president has consistently said we don't have a capable state. We need to capacitate it appropriately. But that means we need to prioritize 
exercise a limited number of areas. So we are very clear the government is committed, at least on paper, uh, to structural reform. But we've seen many examples where it's actually sought to implement it, and there has been progress in that respect. Uh, we need to hold them to account. In fact, I would say, Jeremy, that holding people to account will be uh, one of the absolute uh, litmus tests of how effective the government up to 2024 will mm. be and the likelihood of it being re-elected with a majority. When we talk about difficult decisions, I wonder to myself whether we have the solutions to implement those decisions or are we simply afraid of taking tough decisions? And when I talk about we, I'm talking about government. I'm talking about the nation. Well, I can't speak for government, although obviously as business we've worked very closely with them uh, for many years. Uh, but from my perspective, uh, actually there are two steps in this process. One is to take the difficult decision, to grasp the nettle and to uh, face down enemies. We recognize there are uh, many dissenting views, but in the final analysis... Given that tough decisions are always going to be unpopular to some constituents. They're going to polarize views, but you know that's the nature of leadership. Mm. We can try and forge consensus. What has become apparent in South Africa is that consensus is uh, a nice goal, but unachievable with many of these areas uh, of policy, and we just need to take the decision. Uh, we can go through what some of those might be, whether it's in energy or logistics, whether it's in mm. dealing with crime and corruption, whether it's in the implementation of new infrastructure. That's the first step. The second step is we need to have the capacity, having taken those difficult decisions, to put them into effect, mm. having uh, the real skills, experience, human and financial capital to be able to ensure that we can demonstrate that we can act effectively, having taken those difficult decisions. Let's talk about what the big problems are and what the fix is in just a moment. But the one thing I do want to ask you is, strategically, what lessons were learnt from the management of the pandemic, which you were intimately involved in, that can be applied right now? Yeah, so let me just give two or three examples. I think the first is, uh, strategically, that in certain areas we do need to get consensus about amongst key role players. So when we put in place the COVID grant, the 350 uh, rand a month we're familiar with, and uh, that ended up being extended 60 billion rand to over 6 million people, uh, that was a lot of arm wrestling that took place behind the scenes. A lot of people who were involved from government, but also business, and I have to say, uh, from organized labor. Uh, and we forged a compact and we were relentless, uh, led by, I have to say, the late Rob Lee, uh, who led mm. that work stream for us. We were relentless in calling out uh, non-performance. And the consequence was that over time, uh, we saw the results, uh, the fruits of that labor. The second uh, example is the need to bring PPE into the country. We didn't have any, we can all remember that. But finding that actually we had the capacity if we repurposed existing facilities uh, to produce some of that PPE ourselves uh, on a perfectly economically commercial uh, basis, viable basis. Uh, and the third, which I think is the most important, was working with government on, as I said, the design and then the development and implementation, operationalization, if you like, of the vaccination rollout program. My personal view is actually we did it later than we ought to have done. Uh, again, we could have taken decisions uh, more quickly than was necessary because we would have saved both lives and livelihoods in the process. But actually, it was uh, when it was being rolled out a very effective 
program only through uh, real collaboration and being prepared to both listen uh, and then to act. What is real collaboration? Well, I think real collaboration is recognizing where uh, each partner uh, has different skills and capabilities. I mean, interestingly, in all of these areas that I've talked about, we didn't have reams of documentation mm. setting out the roles and responsibilities. It became apparent very quickly that we were in this challenging set of circumstances together. Uh, that the private sector could mobilize certain resources, expertise, infrastructure, skills and capabilities that the government or the public sector uh, didn't have, and they willingly worked with us. We were not going to claim credit for any of that, Jeremy. We were very happy for the country at large to claim credit led by uh, the government. Now, in more tangible circumstances and areas I'm sure will come, up to, come on to, there needs to be a much clearer set of delineated responsibilities between the parties where we accept what it is uh, that the private sector brings to the uh, equation and the roles and responsibilities of the public sector as well. And I have to say uh, that the government is, generally speaking, uncomfortable to relinquish responsibility pretty much for anything, and that's at the very heart of the conundrum here. But what I'm also hearing you say, Martin Kingston, is that partnership is doable if there is a, a level of urgency, as we Correct. saw in the pandemic. I think we were so how do we make that level of urgency uh, more addressable now, do you think? Well, I think that's exactly right. We need to distinguish between what needs to be done in the short and medium term and in the longer term. So level of urgency for me mm -hmm. is short and medium term. It needs to be a crisis of uh, significant nature. It needs to impact upon everybody rather than either a small sector uh, of, uh, of the country's population uh, or a particular uh, sector of the economy, for example. You know, the energy crisis that we're confronted with today is a very good example. Mm -hmm. The water crisis is another example. It's universal uh, and it needs immediate intervention. Now, in some cases, immediate intervention won't give us immediate relief from the problem, uh, but we need to start to build confidence. My own assessment is that actually partnership is also about communication uh, in an aligned, honest, transparent manner, uh, which can reinforce levels of trust because we deliver what we say we're going to deliver. And again, as a country, we've been poor at doing that. Before you said the word trust, I'd written it down. And we have a deficit there, don't we? Yeah, so it's not a mm. so it's a very interesting word because it's used, uh, I think, rather loosely uh, as representing a trust deficit between the public and the private sector. I don't think that's so. I think there's a trust deficit in the country at large. Trust, in my view, as I said, is built by people delivering against their stated commitments. It's as simple as that that they do what they say they're going to do and they do it effectively, and indeed that people are held accountable or responsible uh, for their commitments and their actions. And what we haven't seen to date has been a demonstration of that, particularly, I have to say, in the public sector, not only mm. uh, in the public sector. The second is that some of this is ideological, which is, are the public sector political figures, if you like, prepared to relinquish responsibility in clearly delineated areas for the private sector to play a role? And I think that that's perfectly possible, provided that it's appropriately regulated. All right. That's the broad philosophical canvas yes. that you've just painted for us. You also mentioned crime, logistics, power, water. Let's get straight to it then. What's the biggest problem we need to fix right now? Well, today, other than the fact that we don't have a consistent narrative, which actually I think is the biggest problem. What does that mean? Huh? 
a consistent narrative. A consistent narrative means that actually when we have an energy crisis, mm. the government speaks with a single voice, that there's a clear set of messages, uh, that there is common purpose that is properly and appropriately articulated by all role players, and not just, by the way, by government, but also, I would say, by other social partners, by the private sector, by civil society. Let me give you an example. In the case of the vaccination rollout program, we were very clear that we all needed to speak exactly the same language. We were speaking to different constituencies. All of us had uh, a lot of coverage uh, uh, in, in all forms of media, whether it's the public or the private sector, civil society or organized labor. I mean, we worked relentlessly at making sure that we had a common script and we rolled it out repeatedly over the length of 20 uh, 21 in particular. Maybe it should have carried on. Now, that is not happening with any of the areas that I've talked about just now, uh, where there is a common understanding in the first place, alignment as to what the key messages should be, and then communicating those messages. Because actually we need, as I said, first and foremost to build confidence. And confidence is very, very tricky to build and very easy to destroy. So we need a common narrative, but within that desire, you've also got to allow for a degree of contestation, though. I mean, that's Correct. important. We don't, but do we over-contest sometimes? I think we mm. do. I think that it's part and parcel of our model mm. uh, of, uh, of social behavior in South Africa. We do over-contest. And I think that we allow uh, too much engagement to try and seek consensus. It comes back to what we were discussing earlier, mm. that in the final analysis, leaders need to take difficult decisions. They don't necessarily need to be consensus decisions. All right. So let's assume that we're striving towards fixing South Africa by developing this common narrative. Why are we unable then to develop it? Is that divide of cooperation, do you think, uh, that exists right now simply too wide to breach? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, in the areas that I've talked about, uh, we're very committed as business to ensuring that we can both cooperate amongst ourselves as business and then collaborate effectively in support of government. All of the areas that I've mentioned, first and foremost, are the domain of the public sector. Mm. It's not as though the private sector can just go out and build a road or build a power plant or solve the issues relating to water or indeed uh, take actions to address the issues of crime and corruption. First and foremost, that is the public sector. But can we work alongside and in support of them if we have a granular understanding of the problems? Because the first thing is to agree what the problems are and what the solutions are. And secondly, to implement them. Of course we can in each and every one of these areas. So let's talk about the common narrative around electricity generation, if we can. People pathetically were celebrating the fact we'd reduced from stage six to stage five, you know, small win. Not that we can really see the difference. How do we find a common narrative, Martin Kingston, around electricity generation? Because there are so many different constituencies within this uh, debate within this orbit that are all saying different things? Well, I think that there are two issues, Jeremy, first and foremost, which is to understand that in the immediate short term, there's nothing that we can do other than reduce demand mm. to solve the problem. We don't have enough generating capacity, and the generating capacity that we do have is broken. Yes. It's not effective and efficient. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be rehabilitated and maintained. We all, I think, understand that, but we need to manage expectations. There's frankly no difference between... Uh, stage six and stage, stage five, as far as the majority of the people in this country are concerned. And when ESCOM puts out a notice, as it did earlier this week, to say indefinite 
stage six, indefinite in my book means for the foreseeable future. It doesn't mean for the next 24 hours. So that's what I mean about being clear mm. about the messaging uh, that we set out. The second is, so we need to manage expectations in terms of how long it will take. The second is that there is no doubt we can bring new uh, energy onto the grid in a relatively short time frame, particularly with respect to renewables or embedded generation. Uh, we know and we understand that it's starting to happen. We need to be clear about the time frame so we can again manage people's expectations. What's the time frame? Well, I think that it's 18 months? months. No, I think it's longer than that. I think it's 18 months to two years. And the more that we try and accelerate the time frame in our narrative and we don't deliver, the more we will undermine our own credibility. So I think that we need to swallow hard and recognize it's going to take longer than we would like. The third is that we need to fix ESCOM, and we can do that in part by making sure that there are resources, skills, and experience that reside inter alia, not just in ESCOM, because we know that it has lost capacity in the private sector, uh, in society at large. We need to mobilize that. So business, for example, has mobilized resources, is seconding resources, an inadequate number, in my opinion, and that requires two aspects. One is a willingness on the part of ESCOM or government to receive those resources. And I think that we've seen a, a real change and a willingness to accept that there are skills capabilities that can be harnessed and brought in-house. And, and secondly, a willingness on the part of society at large, on behalf of the private sector, to make those resources available not for a few weeks, but for the medium term. People who are prepared to roll their sleeves up and get involved, particularly, but not only, obviously, engineers and plant managers and so on and so forth. So we're seeing that start to happen, mm. but it's taking but longer not quick than enough. It Almost exactly a form so. of... of, of National service. Well, I think mm. that actually national mm. service is at the very center mm. uh, of this, Jeremy. The only way that we're going to fix South Africa is by mobilizing all the skills and capabilities in society at large and channeling them appropriately, which requires discipline, by the way. It's very well for you and I to say, let's just mobilize the skills. But the project management capabilities of making sure that we can identify and source those capabilities, we can place them appropriately, we can give them as individuals or as institutions the requisite support, we can sort out the issues between them and the host, whether it be a public sector, state-owned enterprise or a ministry, takes time, and I have to say it takes courage, and people need to learn new ways of working with one another. Do you think business is still willing to step up and play its role, or is it becoming increasingly frustrated, or is simply involved in a survival game? Oh, I think that none of those are mutually exclusive, by the way. I think that business is extremely frustrated. Uh, many businesses are indeed involved in the survival game. And we know, for example, mm. that in the case of transportation, that there are huge challenges in terms of the accumulation of working capital because people cannot ship their goods or product to market, for example. But by the same token, there's not a business that I've spoken to that hasn't agreed that they need to put their personal shoulder to the wheel. I think there's immense goodwill uh, available to be harnessed, even if they are uh, irritated about the time frame and that we don't see immediate success. So what are they waiting for? Well, I don't think they're waiting for anything. I mean, we found within Business for South Africa, there's no approach I've made or we've made, uh, myself and my colleagues, uh, to sectors and to companies to ask for resources. And resources isn't money. Resources is skills and capability. Is chief executives, boards, chairman, uh, top management getting involved. Not a single case where they haven't done that. Uh, I think that the more that we're able to mobilize that type of support and demonstrate that we're acting in good faith to government, uh, the more traction we'll get. Is business not 
getting tired, though, of constantly answering this clarion call, and yet we still find ourselves in the same place. Yes, tired and mm. frustrated. Fatigue, I think, mm. has set in uh, all around. But unfortunately, uh, what we all also accept, Jeremy, is that there's no option. Uh, it is clear and acknowledged indeed by government that they don't have the capacity. They have to work uh, with others to be able to achieve this. Um, and, you know, we're going to have to try and keep on trying. Uh, it's pretty relentless. Uh, I think that we have all been sapped uh, by the experience of certainly the mm. last two years during COVID and coming out of COVID. The political uncertainty certainly, again, undermines confidence. But we all know if we are dispassionate and objective, that the only way through this, uh, regardless of how frustrating it is, is to actually work collaboratively, both with one another, but much more importantly, in support of and alongside government. It's hard for us to be dispassionate and objective, given the situation that we find ourselves in uh, on so many fronts. We see so much anger, Martin, and despair. Among pockets of optimism, mm -hmm. I will concede, some of our other guests on this podcast have said we need a national attitudinal change. How do we foster that? Well, How I do we make people more, more confident, more optimistic, I agree. if it's possible? Well, I agree that mm. it would be nice to have a national attitudinal mm. change. That has to be led from the top. Mm. Uh, there's only one top in this country, by the way. That's the political party that actually has responsibilities been voted in uh, to administer the running of the country on a day-to-day -day basis. Of course, business leadership must play a similar role. I mean, there's no reason why chief executives and chairman and many of the people who I'm sure have already spoken on your podcast mm. uh, can't and, and don't step up to the plate because they do. But that's inadequate. They need to do so under the overall leadership of government. And we're not just talking about words. We're talking about action, as we discussed uh, previously. Uh, and I think that that will foster an attitudinal change. But it's not about words. All right. Let's it's assume, Martin Kingston, then, that we make some progress in terms of crafting this common narrative, that things start to change. Um, that old cliche that you can't manage it unless you can measure it. So what would define short-term wins in this particular respect? Yeah, so I'm not sure that there are mm. measurable short-term wins, I'm afraid, Jeremy, because for me, uh, the key metrics are GDP growth. That's going to take time. Mm. We can measure it on a quarterly basis. We've got, by the way, have common and agreed and objective measurement tools. Uh, the second uh, is we need to address unemployment. We know that that's actually the biggest single headwind, but actually one follows the other. Unless we have investment, unless we have sustainable GDP growth, we're not going to create jobs uh, in the country. So we're in for the long haul. I, I believe that the only way that we're going to inspire confidence is by demonstrating that we have a credible route map, that we're starting to make progress, that we don't deviate uh, from our chosen course, uh, and that we involve all key social partners. So I would like to just sort of emphasize that when I talk about social partners, I'm not just talking about government and business. I am talking about organized labor. I am talking about civil society. I do support uh, the approach that all of those actors need to, broadly speaking, put their individual and collective shoulders to the wheel. I end this podcast asking the same question to all the guests, and it's a bit future-focused, if you don't mind. Uh, when you're talking to your children or your grandchildren or whatever the case may be in, say, 20, 25 years' time, 
What are you going to tell them, Martin Kingston, about the early 2020s and maybe their role as the next baton-holding generation? Yes, so that is a, a very difficult question mm. to answer, of course. Uh, my sense is that uh, uh, we are living in you know, very challenging times, both in South Africa and globally, probably unprecedented in any of our lifetimes, no matter how old you, know, you and I might be, mm. Jeremy. Uh, and I think that we owe it to our children and our grandchildren uh, to uh, leave them as a legacy, a better environment, certainly in South Africa, where we have some level of influence than globally. And one of the ways that we do that is by focusing on, you know, a behavior, uh, a behavior that is responsible, which has integrity, uh, and where we ensure that we each do our very best uh, for the good of the country, not just for ourselves. And I think that moving uh, the focus away from what's good for me to what's good for everybody uh, will be absolutely critical. And I'd like to endow not just my children and grandchildren, but everyone else with that philosophy. Martin Kingston, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Jeremy Maggs. Thanks for listening to this Fix Essay podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app. Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.